seated. And if you would, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, where we'll pick up our reading at verse 21. It's found on page 1019 of your pew Bible, 1019. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 21. Just a moment. All around the world this morning, all around the world this morning, Christians are observing the feast of Jesus' circumcision and naming. If you were raised in a traditional Lutheran or Anglican uh, context, you might remember this feast day held usually every January 1st, or if you go by the church's calendar, the eighth day of Christmas. It's also celebrated in Roman Catholicism and in Orthodox churches. Martin Luther himself got into his pulpit and one January 1st Sunday, as I am doing this morning, and he told his congregation, quote, the gospel demands that our sermon be about the circumcision and the name Jesus, end quote. Now, at Grace PCA and in our denomination, we do not believe that we are obligated to follow the various and, to be honest with you, conflicting church calendars. But we do make use of these traditions when they're rooted in Scripture and when they reinforce God's Word. We also want to be careful to acknowledge the Bible's warning that the creating of holy days can be a slippery slope. All that said, I think it's very appropriate and a very appropriate text for us today to consider Christ's circumcision. First of all, because it's Sunday, January 1st, and they happen to fall together this year. And that will not happen again for many more years. But also secondly, because this passage, Christ's circumcision, brings our Advent series to a close. I know many of us have been traveling And have been ill. So, just a quick reminder about what we've been studying together this Christmas. Our Advent series is entitled In His Flesh. The focus of the series is to answer the question why did Jesus have to come in the flesh? What's the significance of that in the flesh part? You might recall that I made the case a few weeks back that our unity as a body depends upon it. That Jesus, in his body, united all believers in a way that is undeniable and unbreakable. Pastor Treskar went on to show from 1 John that this doctrine is essential to our faith and a mark of those who truly believe and embrace the biblical gospel. Today, lastly, we will see that Jesus came in the flesh so that he might fulfill the law Paul writes in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In circumcision, Jesus places himself under the law. As Paul told the Galatians, Later on, he wrote to them, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Paul is saying that if you take on, if you take on the sacrament of circumcision, 
not just the medical procedure, but you, you take it as a sacrament, you are under the obligations of all the law. Well, that is exactly what Jesus does here, what he intended to do here and throughout the Gospels. He puts himself under the law that he might redeem us from the law. In our text today, Jesus, for the first time, sheds his blood in order to fulfill the law. It is the same attitude that we will see in Jesus again at the beginning of his ministry when he goes to John the Baptist and John the Baptist is scared to baptize him and yet Jesus turns to him and says, it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus saves us not by skipping the Old Testament. Rather, he saves us by entering fully and deeply into every ritual and every command. Jesus truly thought of everything. Nothing was ignored. Nothing was thrown out. He fulfilled it all. Heaven and earth may pass away, but not one dot of the law is ever unaddressed or unfulfilled. Today, let us hear how our Savior, who is the lawgiver, placed himself entirely under the law for our sake. Please stand. Let's read and look together at Luke chapter 2, beginning again in verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Joshua, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we come this morning into a temple far more precious, far more wonderful, and far more dangerous than the one in Jerusalem. We come into your holy presence, and we come as those unclean in and of ourselves. But we do not bring two pigeons or two turtle doves. We bring the Lamb of God, his blood shed for us. So now receive us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to listen circumcise our hearts and our ears to your word. For we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you are play, paying close attention to our reading, you may have noticed that our passage this morning describes three, three liturgical acts. Three liturgical acts. Liturgy, if you're not familiar with that word, means worship. Every church has a liturgy. Um, sometimes people look at our bulletin and they say, you're very liturgical because we have all the readings and all that. But actually, every church has a liturgy. You have a liturgy. I'd like to know after the service, maybe you can tell me what your liturgy is at home. Do you pray before you read? Do you pray after you read? How do you pray? That's a liturgy. It means worship. Now, these three liturgical acts... Uh, that are recorded for us here in these verses, all take place at the temple in Jerusalem and were part of the worship and faith of God's people in the Old Testament. 
Mary and Joseph have traveled to the temple for the performance of these three sacraments or these three liturgies. Now, these were not, these were not empty, made up by priest type liturgies. Uh, some of us have been in churches or maybe even temples where rituals, rituals were performed, but they had no real meaning. But don't bring that passage, that prejudice to this passage. Remember what we're told in verse 24, actually twice in this section, that all this was done, verse 24, according to what is said in the law of the Lord. These liturgies were God's idea, his commands, his liturgies. In fact, if you think about it for just a moment, it's only because, it is only because of Mary and Joseph's obedience to these liturgies that something really wonderful took place that day. As many of you know, verse 25 and following, you can scan those real quickly, we meet two extraordinary believers, don't we? Anna and Simeon. Both are actively involved at the temple in liturgy, in prayer and in worship. They see a couple approaching to do the normal sacramental acts. They've seen it a hundred times before, but this time, by the Holy Spirit, they both know this is special. And what follows is a wonderful prophecy and song by Simeon. But here's my point this morning. It was in, it was in the midst of their faithful God-ordained worship. It was in the midst of their liturgy that God met with them. And I think there's a powerful lesson there for us. Sometimes submitting ourselves to the liturgies of the church can feel oppressive, boring, or even unnecessary. We don't feel like getting up and getting out to church. We often don't feel like doing our personal liturgies either. We don't feel like doing our daily prayers or getting up in the morning to read our Bible. But we need to see, we need to see that again and again, God meets his people in their worship. Remember, it was while Jesus' disciples were praying on one Sunday night, the first Sunday night service, that suddenly Jesus was among them. And so during our evening service, I'll often say or mention Maranatha, that is, come Lord Jesus. It was during the Passover meal, that liturgy, that Jesus broke bread and gave thanks and established the first Lord's Supper. And it was John, the Apostle John, who was, quote, in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, keeping the Lord's Day when he was taken up into heaven and gave us the book of Revelation. Now, I know, I know that God can meet you anywhere, but don't underestimate the liturgies he has given to us. Weekly worship with believers on the Lord's Day, the keeping of the two sacraments, one we'll keep this morning, and then private prayer and reading of Scripture. Anna and Simeon were going about their daily liturgies, and then suddenly, suddenly, the Lord whom they sought all their lives was in his temple. So angels now have proclaimed Christ's birth. A prophet and prophetess, Anna and Simeon, hail him as the Savior. Soon, very soon, Herod will send soldiers to kill him. Who is this that can evoke 
such explosions of joy and rage. It is the Lord, the Lord at his temple. Today, our text, this is the first time he came to his temple. And this time he has come not to overturn tables, but to place himself under the law for our sake. Look with me then at the three temple liturgies that Jesus engages in and fulfills. The first and the most important of the liturgies he entered into is found in verse 21, and it's his circumcision. Look at that verse again, verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Circumcision was a central practice in the life of God's Old Testament people. In fact, about 150 years before this moment, before Christ's birth, the Jews literally fought and died for the right to continue this practice. That fight is celebrated every year all around us in South Jersey. It's called Hanukkah. There's so much to say then about this liturgy, but I want to try and summarize it for you. This could be a series of sermons, really, but to try and summarize it for you. Circumcision essentially was a gospel sign. Circumcision essentially was a gospel sign. It was a liturgy or sacrament that preached to you the bad news of sin and at the same time the good news of salvation. That's why it was a gospel sign. It preached to you the bad news of sin and the good news of salvation. It was designed by God to powerfully press both those realities onto the hearts of all of God's people. So on the one hand, it forced you, didn't it, to think very deeply about sin and the power of sin. In circumcision, you were symbolically cutting something off, the old man, more about that in a minute, and laying it aside. It was a constant, intimate, and painful reminder that change must occur for someone to enter into God's presence and be a part of his family. In short, circumcision said to the Jews, every time they practiced it, you must be born again. And that is exactly how Moses and the prophets used this idea. So as a Jew, you receive the law, and then you have the sacrament of circumcision, the liturgy of circumcision, to remind you every day that only a changed heart and life could embrace that law, that you were dead in your flesh. Paul got this. Paul, of course, understood this completely. And he uses throughout the New Testament letters the very language, this same language in Greek, the language of circumcision in various ways. In Colossians 2.13, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then in many other passages, he uses this language when he urges believers to put off the old man, to circumcise their hearts, as it were. Circumcision then was a reminder of the true power of sin. On New Year's Day, many years ago, Martin Luther got up in his pulpit. And he reminded his congregation 
of a profound truth about circumcision that we often ignore. Now, I get this is a little awkward, but this is God's word, so we need to hear it. So listen. The place where circumcision happens is not accidental. Luther notes, God could have asked them to circumcise their hands or baptize their feet. And then the message would have been, the message would have been, right, I have no problem with you personally, just with your words, your actions. Reform yourself. Do better. But that's not what God did. God chose the place that reminds us of who we are. We are all men and women, heirs of Adam and heirs of the curse. The problem is not just our words or our ears. It's that every man and woman is sin. If it were just our words, we could cut our tongue. If it was just our deeds, we could tattoo our hands. But if the problem is us, then this is the place to strike. Although women did not undergo this sacrament, they did take part. Every woman saw this reality in her husband. They had to see their sons and brothers go through this. The message was clear. Sin is handed down. Everyone comes from it. There are no birthing people in reality or in the Bible, only moms and dads. Everyone has a dad, whether you're male or female. And this mark reminded them that Adam's sin passed through men, was handed down through men to every man, woman, and child. This, as many of you know, is why Jesus was born of a virgin, that he might not be born in Adam's sin through a human father. So circumcision was a vivid reminder of the power of sin, a power that is in us from conception, handed down to us from Adam through our fathers. But second of all, circumcision also preached good news to us. It was first instituted, if you think back, it was first instituted in Genesis 17 with Abraham. In Genesis 15, two chapters earlier, God had already declared Abraham righteous on the basis of faith alone. Having believed God and having been justified by faith, circumcision is then given to Abraham as a sign and a seal of his adult faith. Paul says in Romans chapter 4 that circumcision was a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had already by faith. Just as our sacraments today, it signed or it illustrated God's grace while also being used by God to seal, that is to press upon us, that very grace. Abraham then took that sign of his adult faith and applied it to his household and to all Jewish children afterward. And so at the moment of circumcision, at the moment of circumcision, there is a terrible realization of sin but also a wonderful hope of new life in God. Parents were saying in the act of circumcision, yes, I know my child is born in sin, but yes, God also welcomes my child into the family of promise. This was good news. Also notice with me that circumcision wasn't done on just any other day, was it? But on the eighth day, 
Luke informs us, verse 21, that Jesus, and we hear this of John the Baptist, this was prescribed in scripture, they were all circumcised according to the law on the eighth day. Why does that even matter? Well, in the Bible, the eighth day is a symbol of new beginnings. Jesus would have had a seven-day week. That's how they would have thought of the week, Saturday to Saturday. And as you look through the liturgies of Israel, there's often a time of preparation that is Saturday to Saturday. And then the eighth day, what we're doing right now, the first day of the week, the eighth day would be the day of new beginnings. Something new would happen. It would be the time, the day right after the time of preparation. It was a symbol of the dawn of new things, a new week, a new birth. The church fathers, because they were much closer to Judaism and the Judaism of Jesus' day, they understood this. And as you read the church fathers, they often refer to the Lord's day today as the eighth day. And today, January 1st, is also, by ancient custom, the eighth day of Christmas Circumcision then was set up, even in the Old Testament, to preach good news of new things. It was the symbol in the Old Covenant of being born again, of being a new creation, of putting off the old man. And that's why it's so similar to baptism and why the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, used it constantly to speak of the new birth. As we've already seen, Paul uses it this way too. Paul tells the Philippians, we are the circumcision because we worship God in the spirit. And in Colossians, Paul announces that Christians have received, you heard this read earlier, the circumcision of Christ. That is what? The new birth. He writes, you were dead in circumcision and uncircumcision rather. But now through the circumcision of Christ, you are made alive. Now, here's the point. Jesus entered fully into this gospel sign with its bad news and its good news. As God's perfect son, he had no need of circumcision. Jesus was born without sin, so why does he allow himself to be taken through this liturgy? Because, as Luke reminds us here, Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. He did not have this sin, but he submits himself to it. You notice that's what Luke is emphasizing when he says that the name did not come from Joseph. That may not stand out to us because we don't live in this culture, but in Jewish culture, your firstborn son is your heir, and it is the father's prerogative to name that boy, usually after himself or after a father or a close family member. Luke wants to emphasize here that Joseph did not give him his name. God the Father has the prerogative to name his son as he appears upon earth. And so there is no original sin in Christ. There's no sin of Adam. And yet he takes upon himself the full liturgies of circumcision. Jesus is born of the Holy Spirit, not of man, and therefore not part of Adam's guilt. And yet he takes onto himself the sign of that guilt and sin. And this is what I want you to understand. He does that for us. He does that for you. This is just the beginning. Jesus will take upon himself all the rituals, all the liturgies, all the rules, all the requirements of the law, so that instead of being tossed aside, they will be fulfilled, filled with meaning and completed. He does this 
for us. Second, and moving a little more quickly now, Jesus is brought to the temple for a second liturgy. He's brought there to be consecrated, to be presented to the Lord. Look again at verses 22 and 23. And when the time had came or come for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. What does Luke mean when he says that Jesus was presented to the Lord? Did they just show up with Jesus in their arms, hold him up towards the temple and say, well, here he is? Not at all. This again was a liturgy. It was a sacrament, a sacramental time. Luke, who ministered to Gentiles and wrote this book originally for someone who probably wasn't a Jew, uh, knows he needs to explain. So he quotes Exodus in verse 23 to sort of explain what's going on here. So you, to understand what's happening, as Jesus is presented in the temple, you have to go back to the Passover. Remember the scene. In judgment, God descends on Egypt. The Egyptians, remember this, they've killed the firstborn of Israel and enslaved all the rest. God has given them numerous plagues as an opportunity to repent. But Pharaoh, and not really just Pharaoh, but all of Egypt, has hardened their heart. And so God sends one final judgment. God will now justly judge the Egyptians. They had taken his firstborn, and now he will take theirs. But there's a big problem. When God descends in judgment, he must be just. He must be fair. He must punish all sin. Not just the sin of people he likes or doesn't like, but all sin. Imagine a judge for a moment who only punishes people he doesn't like. Well, that would be an unjust judge, but God is just. So when he descends on Egypt, it's not just the Egyptians that are in danger. It is the firstborn of Israel too. It's everyone's firstborn. So what does God do? He tells Israel to put blood on their doors and the angel of death will pass over. Therefore, in the Old Testament, the firstborn son of every Jewish family was holy, consecrated unto the Lord. He was bought with a price in a special way on that night. And so God would require Jewish families to go to the temple and present their firstborn son to the Lord in memory of that salvation. Now in God's mercy... He did not make all those firstborn boys stay at the temple and become priests. In other words, uh, you were presenting your first son, not as your heir like all other nations, but you would come up to the temple and essentially you're presenting him to be a priest, to serve God night and day. And this would have been a massive sacrifice for families, especially in those days, to take your firstborn son who's to be your heir and give him to the Lord in that way. So in God's mercy... He instead chooses the tribe of Levi to take the place of all the firstborn. And in Numbers 8, you can read that later, God makes this arrangement, this mercy. But he still required, nonetheless, he still required Jewish families to go to the temple, present their firstborn, and pay a tax 
a fee, a really a gift, an offering to the Levites, an offering to recognize what God had done for them and to support the Levites who had the honor and the responsibility of being priests, of fulfilling the firstborn requirement. There is just one really important exception to this practice, and I need to mention it because Mary mentions it when Gabriel tells her about the birth of Jesus. Hannah, Hannah took her firstborn son, Samuel, to the temple, but he remains there and becomes a great prophet and priest. Later on in Jesus' life, at the age of 12, about the time of the bar mitzvah, Jesus will go again to the temple and remain for a while, sitting and teaching. His parents will be quite worried as they look for him. But again, the picture is important. Jesus, like Samuel, will be both prophet and priest. Here's the point. Here's the point. When Jesus was presented at temple, it wasn't just a meet and greet. It was a sacred moment, a liturgical moment. Presented doesn't mean showing up. It means being consecrated, turned over to God for God's purposes. And here, once again, don't you see how Jesus fulfilled this liturgy? He alone is the one fully consecrated to the Father's will entirely. He is the firstborn in a way that Mary and Joseph could scarcely even understand. Again, Jesus needs no presentation, but he places himself into the liturgies, into the commandments of Israel, that he might fill them up, that he might fulfill them. That is, once again, not to discard the law as useless, but to so fill it that there's no need anymore for us to do this. There's no room Why does he do this? Why does he put himself again and again under the law? Well, he does it so that he might save us from our sins by fulfilling the law on our behalf. And here is the deep irony of this moment. Maybe you notice this. He is presented at the temple so that you and I can be presented at the temple. Listen as Paul uses identical words to make this expression. He has now, Paul writes, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death us to God in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. All of this was done for us so that we might become in Christ the firstborn of God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he that is Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you see? There is nothing thrown away. Nothing is wasted. Jesus has not come to destroy the law, but to fill it. And this he did in his body, in his flesh. Why did Jesus have to come in the flesh? To be presented at the temple as the firstborn, so that we through him might be consecrated to God. The third liturgy 
here in our text is the purification of Mary. Mary offers, look at verse 24, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons at the entrance of the temple. In the law of Moses, women were unclean after a delivery and a sacrifice was made before they could re-enter into the normal worship of the temple and fully engage in that worship once again. A little side note here, this was not because God had anything against women or against birth. It's because birth involves blood. And wherever that's involved, whether it's a man touching blood or a woman uh, who is having a child, wherever the situation, there was an offering for sin. These kinds of rituals were used. So Mary has gone up for that reason. She's poor. She's poor, and so she follows the law that allows her, instead of bringing a lamb, to bring just two little birds. This, too, is a Christ moment, rich with the glory of Christ. Mary would have approached the temple with these two birds. One of the birds would have been taken by the priest and burned as a whole burnt offering covering her sin. The second bird she would have placed her hands on, symbolizing the transfer of her sin and guilt to the bird, and it too would die. Now let me ask you this. Does she do all this with the Lamb of God still in her arms? Do you see? Like thousands before her, she has come to the temple to acknowledge her sinfulness and to approach God through the shedding of blood, but in her arms... She holds the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This liturgy then, this liturgical moment done by women for millennia is suddenly transformed. Jesus' birth has not defiled Mary. She doesn't need to even really make this offering. Rather, Jesus' birth is the beginning of her cleansing. Maybe these words or something like them were already forming in the back of your mind as I said these things. Paul writes, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Or the words of Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. At this very moment, if you are a Christian, the blood of Christ has opened for you and for Mary a new and living way, not just into the outer courts of the temple where Mary would have been allowed, where she hoped to go that day, but behind the veil, into the presence of God himself, a privilege she could not have even imagined for herself. God's firstborn son, circumcised in heart and flesh, begotten, not created, has filled all the liturgies of Israel, and by coming under them and in them, he's earned for Mary and for all of us all their blessings. His crowning victory will come at Passover, during the Passover liturgy some 30 years later. On the cross, 
all the liturgies will find their yes and amen in him. So then, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Because he came in the flesh, he is able to fulfill every righteous requirement. And he is still today circumcised. He is fully alive to the will of God. He is still today presented before God in his temple, and he presents us as his beloved bride. And he is still the Lamb of God who takes the sins on himself, the sins of the world. And he is still the Lamb upon whom we may, like Mary, place our hands and know that he takes away our sins. He is able then, writes the author of Hebrews, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. This is what he began to do that day. What he began to do and what January 1st has always been about for the church. He was born under the law to save those under the law that in him all the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled. But let's close our sermon by asking, why did he do this? I've been talking this whole time about what he has accomplished and that is glorious, but Let me ask you why. And here I think is the greatest mystery of all. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it, shocking as this is, to be with us. He did it to fulfill the covenant. Never forget, brothers and sisters, God's greatest gift to us and the whole point of all the covenants of Scripture The whole point all along has always been to give himself to us. That's why all scholars agree the covenant is summed up in these simple words. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so the world doesn't end with us just forgiven and then going back to our business. No, we are like the prodigal son. We run to God saying, just forgive me. Let me come near the temple. Let me just get near. But he runs to meet us, puts a ring on our finger and says, I will do much more than you can think or ask. I will make you a firstborn son. I will present you spotless in my true temple. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have uh, this morning only begun to enter into the great liturgies of Israel and into the greatness of our Messiah who fulfilled them all. Strengthen us to think more in the year to come of his greatness and help us this day to rejoice in our salvation. As we come now to this table, may we hear it speaking to us the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. We come presenting ourselves to this temple, your temple in heaven, 
only through the merits of Jesus Christ. And how we thank you at the close of this Advent season that he came in the flesh, and the flesh made propitiation for all our sin. These things we pray and offer up to you in praise and in worship and in our liturgy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.